add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political commentator for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, pulls for and designs research-based message and media strategies for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling company, go to Facebook.com front slash Bannon dash communications dash research. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome all of you who are watching me on Twitter or Periscope. Now you can watch the show, if you're listening right now, you can watch the show by going to the link periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon, all one word. Today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, we'll discuss pandemic economic policy in the first half hour with Heidi Shearholz of the Economic Policy Institute. In the second half hour, our guest will be Ed Chung of the Center for American Progress, who will discuss uh, the Trump administration's misadministration of the Department of Justice. Our first guest today is Heidi Shearholz. She is the Senior Economist and Director of Policy at Economic Policy Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank created in 1986 to include the needs of low and middle income workers in economic policy discussions. That's something that's sadly needed. Uh, Heidi leads EPI's policy team, which monitors wage and employment policies coming out of Congress and the administration and advances a worker-first policy agenda. Uh, Heidi's uh, Twitter handle uh, is H-S-H-I-E-R-H-O-L-Z. That's H-S-H-I-E-R-H-O-L-Z. Welcome to Deadline DC, Heidi. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with the basics. Could you uh, give our listeners a sense of how bad the economic devastation of the pandemic has been so far? Yeah, it's hard to 
put it into words. It's like nothing I've ever seen. So we got April data out. So now we finally have some really good data about what's really going on. It showed unprecedented job losses in April. We lost over 20 million jobs. The unemployment rate jumped up over 10 percentage points from where it was in March. So now it's at 14.7%. And that unemployment rate is actually really understating just how many people have lost their jobs as a result of the coronavirus shock, because there's a lot of people who BLS noted were misclassified as being employed, but not at work, like they're on furlough. Instead, they should have been classified as being temporarily unemployed. BLS said that if those people had been correctly um, classified, the unemployment rate that they would have measured would have been nearly 20%. And that leaves out a whole bunch of people who have are out of work as a result of the coronavirus, but because of the lockdown, they're unable to search for work. And so that means they are not counted as officially unemployed because to be officially unemployed, you have to be actively seeking work. So if you add all that together, I think the survey data are showing right now that the unemployment rate should be on the order of 23.6%. It's just it's just a remarkable scene, um, remarkable in the absolute worst sense. It's a it's a real scene of of devastation. Now, before the uh, pandemic struck, we already had a big problem with income inequality, a widening gap between the uh, status of uh, wealthy Americans and low and middle income Americans. Is this crisis likely to accentuate that uh, income, the problem of income inequality? Yep, it absolutely will. It's we're we, as you said it, we, you know, we're we're coming off of four and a half decades of an economy that really was tilted against low and middle income people. So income growth in the economy went to the people at the top rather than being broadly shared. And what we're seeing here is that the pain of this is also not being as broadly shared, that it's really hitting particularly low income workers right now. The job loss um, that we've seen so far has really been concentrated amongst low wage workers, like frontline industries that have been particularly hit by social distancing measures, important social distancing measures, but nevertheless devastating for the labor market. So think restaurants, hotels, event staff, brick and mortar retail. These are low wage jobs where people are just seeing taking big hits. And so they're like when all is said and done, this is going to really exacerbate increasing inequalities. And that also will exacerbate increasing inequalities based on race and ethnicity. We will see black and Hispanic workers getting hit harder by this recession than 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 white workers. And so it will exacerbate those wage gaps by race and ethnicity. It's it. This is what always happens in recessions that you see a exacerbation of existing inequalities among among many dimensions. Um, I do think the nature of this recession is going to make that worse than even usual. Now, uh, they released uh, the new unemployment figures uh, last Friday, as they do the first uh, Friday of every month. Uh, And I read that uh, the current unemployment rate uh, is the highest it's been since the Great Depression, not the Great 
session in the uh, uh, in the uh, ten or so years ago, but uh, the Great Depression back in the 1930s. Yep, that is I, I that's exactly what we are seeing, and it is likely that some measures of sort of labor underutilization, if not the official unemployment rate will far surpass what we saw in the Great Depression before this is over. So it is, it's really, uh, we're, we're getting hit so hard by this. It's these, the, the health measures that we're taking are super important. I actually believe that they will make our economy better off in the long run. We open too soon, that will actually hurt us economically. Um, but it is, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult situation right now. Our guest in this first half hour of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon is Heidi Scherholz, who is the chief economist, senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute. We're going to continue our discussion with Heidi after these messages. So stay tuned and uh, we'll talk more with Heidi about the in- economic impact of the great pandemic. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life. Real Talk. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour to discuss the devastating impact, economic impact of the pandemic uh, is Heidi Scherholz, who is the senior economist and director of policy at the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, Heidi, the uh, Congress has already passed one stimulus uh, program, uh, and uh, almost everybody, except I guess Mitch McConnell, uh, thinks there's probably a need, there's a need for another one that goes further. Uh, tell me, as an economist, what do you think uh, the federal government should? do in the next step to deal with the impact of the pandemic? This is where I get a more optimistic because there is actually a lot that can be done. This isn't something that we just have to do nothing and let it happen. There is a great deal we can do about it. There is a question of whether Congress will do what needs to be done, but here's what we should do. So one of the um, most important priorities right now sounds a little wonky, but it's we need relief to state and local governments. And it's really straightforward. State and local governments are seeing a huge decline in their tax revenues as a result of, you know, people don't have incomes, they aren't spending as much. So tax revenues are just bottoming out, but they have balanced budget requirements. So without federal aid, they will have no choice but to massively cut spending, lay people off, cut essential services. We already saw nearly a million state and local workers lose their jobs in the month of April, which is just, it was, it, 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 that never happens this early in a recession, which is just a testament to how bad this, this really is. The federal government can easily step in and get aid to states, get aid to localities. They absolutely should be doing this to avoid more layoffs and then to avoid states and localities from becoming like anti-stimulus machines as they have to pull out um, spending from the economy, as they have to make cuts because their revenues have fallen so much. So that's priority number one. 
um, we estimate that on the order of a trillion dollars will be needed for that over the next few years. So it's it's big. That's the kind of situation that we're in. They, um, the federal government also needs to expand or extend the unemployment insurance benefits that were in the CARES package. The expansion in the in the prior um, Recovery Act was were great. It was some of the absolute best provisions in that Recovery Act. There was an expansion of benefits. There was uh, people got get more benefits than they usually do. Um, there was an expansion of benefits to people who are usually locked out of the regular state UI systems. Like if you're an independent contractor, your business has tanked in this economy just like everyone else's, but you're not eligible for regular state UI benefits. But the the recovery package expanded that so you could get benefits. That's those those provisions are helpful to millions of people, but they're set to expire when the unemployment rate is, you know, some of the provisions are set to expire at the end of July, when the unemployment rate is likely going to be over 15%. It's just, we need to extend those things. So that's a super important part of the equation. There's a bunch of additional things like, let's get more mandated safety precautions for essential workers. They're going to work every day, grocery stores, other essential services, they're just saving all of us in this downturn. We need to make sure that they're protected. We need to get relief to the to the USPS, the United States Postal Service is really suffering in this and they they provide absolutely essential services. So we need to get aid to the to the postal service. We need to um, invest dramatically in testing and contact tracing. Our economy is no Barring an, a vaccine or an effective treatment, those things, if we had a vaccine or an effective treatment, we'd be able to reopen the economy more quickly. But barring those things, and, and they may be a very long time away, what we need to reopen is a very effective system of testing and contact tracing. And so we should be investing in you know a small army of contact tracers to make that possible so we can successfully reopen the economy. Um, there's, so there's a there's a bunch of of there's I, I all of this and more are sort of the set of things that Congress really could do to make a huge difference, make eliminate as much suffering as possible as a result of this. And I think the the um, a, a key thing in all that is it's absolutely something that we can afford. This is right now the risk of doing too little is far, far worse than the risk of doing too much. We absolutely can afford this. Interest rates are extremely low. We can borrow this money very cheaply. Not doing this will lead to a high, high degrees of um, unemployment going forward that will actually do far more economic damage. Okay. Uh, now, uh, I read over the weekend that uh uh, the uh, Senate Majority uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is talking about uh, a massive economic uh, policy package to deal with the economic impact of the uh, uh, virus. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about what they're planning on proposing? Yeah, so some stuff has been leaked. There's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns. They're still crafting it, but some things we know that there will likely be a substantial amount of money for state and local aid. So that's great. 
um, some additional extensions of unemployment insurance. So that's great. Um, likely some aid to post op the United States Post Office, Postal Service. So that's a good thing. I understand that there will be some money in there for testing and tracing. That's good. Um, what I'm worried about not being in there is um, it's absolutely essential that the provisions that are put in place to, to deal with the coronavirus shock don't have arbitrary end dates. And that's the way things have been done. And I'm, I'm, I'm worried that that's what will happen in this, in this proposal too. So arbitrary end dates at a time like this, when we have absolutely no idea really how the next few months are gonna unfold, arbitrary end dates make no sense. You could say, okay, these provisions will end at the end of the year when we have no idea if we'll still need them or not. Or you could say something like, all right, we'll keep these provisions in place until the unemployment rate is within two percentage points of where it was when this all started or something like that in order to um, make sure that, you know, if this, if we do get a really quick bounce back, this all resolves quicker than we thought, we don't have to spend that money. But if we do still need it at the uh, farther down the road, we won't cut it off right in the middle of, of us needing it. So it just makes perfect sense to do things that way. I am a little worried that that's not how this is going to be designed. It wasn't how prior packages were designed. Well, there's what the Democrats in Congress design, and then there's the willingness of uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority, majority leader and the president, uh, for accepting any of this. And my guess is whatever comes out of this, it's not going to be uh, the Trump administration and the Republicans in the Senate will make sure it's probably pretty limited uh what's the short-term prognosis for the economy in the next you know few months it's not good this uh until we can you know until we can get a system in place where we can effectively successfully reopen which requires really effective testing and tracing we are going to continue to see a deterioration so we saw 20 million more than 20 million jobs lost in april but the survey that did that was actually for mid-April. It doesn't cover the whole month. It just looks at a snapshot in the, the middle of the month. And we've lost more than six mil, or we've seen more than six million additional people apply for unemployment insurance since that time. So it's still, it's going to get, it, the, the days are going to get darker before they get brighter again. Heidi, uh, thank you very much. Our guest in this half hour was Heidi Scherholz, who is the Senior Economist and Policy Director at the Economic Policy Institute. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC after these messages. Thank you. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks, that was fun. Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, every Monday, as you know, I write a column for The Hill on Campaign 2020. Uh, and here's today's column. Uh, Kamala Harris leads the list of Biden running mates. Victory has a thousand mothers and fathers. A successful political campaign has many building blocks. 
Joe Biden's quest for the Democratic presidential nomination is no exception. There are many reasons for his win, but one factor that stands out is his support uh, and his claim on the Democratic nomination was a success with African-American voters in the primaries this year. After weak showings in the early contests in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, Biden won a resounding victory in South Carolina with strong assists from black voters there. In the Palmetto State, most of the primary voters were African-American, and they voted in large numbers for Joe Biden over Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders by a four-to-one margin. After his big victory in South Carolina, Biden capitalized on his support with black Democrats with a strong showing on Super Tuesday. The former vice president's win in Texas is a good example. Biden and Sanders received the same level of support from white voters, but Barack Obama's two-time running mate won the overwhelming support of African-Americans in the Lone Star State. Why did Biden do so well with uh, black primary voters? The relationship between Biden and Barack Obama was a big plus. The symbolism of an older white man serving a younger black man loyally for eight years makes it easy to understand Biden's overwhelming support from black Democrats in the nomination campaign. Sanders, in contrast, was dismissive of many aspects of the Obama presidency. Biden called for the expansion of President Obama's signature achievement, the Affordable Care Act, while Bernie Sanders wanted to replace Obamacare. Elizabeth Senator Elizabeth Warren is the favorite vice presidential candidate of most Democratic primary voters in a recent national poll conducted by uh, CBS News. But black voters made Joe, but black voters made Joe Biden. Will the presumptive Democratic nominee make his good make good his debt to them with an African-American running mate? If Biden does decide to go uh to run with an African-American, he has plenty of qualified women to choose from. For example, uh, Chris Kluzer's ranking in CNN of the top 10 most likely Biden running mates included five African-American women. They were Senator Kamala Harris of California, who is number one, former United Nations Ambassador Susan Rice, number five, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, number six, Representative Val Demings of Florida, number eight, and former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams at nine. Harris trails Warren 36% to 19% in the vice presidential poll uh, in CBS News. But the senator from California is is at the top of running mate rankings from most pundits. There is good reason for her standing with political insiders. First of all, she has a killer resume. Harris has served as an an elective office at the federal, state, and local level, which is strong preparation for serving as vice president or even as president. Her career started as the San Francisco district attorney in 2004. From there, she went on to become California attorney general in 2011, and she was elected a United States senator in 2016. Harris also has the kind of charisma which attracts attention. Harris, along with Senator Amy Globachar, 
and Cory Booker of New Jersey, was one of the three members of the Senate Judiciary Committee who ran for president. During the hearings on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to become an associate justice of the Supreme Court, Globeshar and Booker made strong showings. But it was Kamala Harris who was the focus of the press attention during the committee's deliberations. Harris's unsuccessful run for president is also a plus in this day and in this day and age of media exposure. Media exposure and vetting in a run for president are worth their weight for gold, even if the candidate loses. If Biden asks her to be his running mate, he won't be in for any big surprises. It's hardly a coincidence that three of the top finishes in the CBS preference poll, Harris, Warren, and Globachar, ran for president in 2020. Stacey Abrams of Georgia is the lone exception. Globachar, like Harris, served in elected office at all three levels of government. Globachar's selling point is geography. She's a daughter of the Midwest, which is ground zero in the battle for supremacy in the Electoral College. But Joe Biden may feel he owes a debt to African-American voters for helping him become the presumptive Democratic nominee. That obligation coincides with its strategic imperative for the Democratic nominee to run with an African-American woman. An analysis of U.S. Census data by the Pew Research Center indicated there was a sharp drop from 66.6% to 59.6% in black turnout between 2016 and 2020. African-American participation is a key to reclaiming the industrial Midwestern states that are important to victory in the Electoral College. Relatively low African-American turnout in Detroit, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia contributed to Hillary Clinton's narrow defeats in the key battleground states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. The wide choice of quality candidates and the need to balance competing interests will make selecting a running mate very tough call for Joe Biden. Uh, you can read this column and my take on the presidential race in the Hill every Monday uh, just Google muckrack, M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K, dot com, front slash Brad dash Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Ed Chung, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress, where he co-hosts The Tent podcast. Before working at the Center for American Progress, he served as a senior advisor on criminal justice, policing, and civil rights issues for the Assistant Attorney General of the Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. Department of Justice. He also held positions in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, including special counsel to the Assistant Attorney General and federal prosecutor with the criminal section where he received the John Marshall Award for successfully, successfully prosecuting the first case under the Marshall Shepard and James Byrd James Bird Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009. Some of our audience will also recognize Ed's voice as he has, post, he has co-hosted Leslie's show a number of times in the past. Uh, Ed's uh, handle, uh, Twitter handle is Ed Chung DC. And the podcast handle is the tent, uh, uh, P, uh, the tent pod. 
Uh, Ed, thanks for joining us uh, today on uh, uh, DC, uh, well, uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, I'm a part-time political science professor, and since my specialty is American government and politics, uh, I often teach the intro uh, course, uh, Intro to American Politics. Now, the first thing I do uh, when I teach uh, uh, Intro to American Politics uh, is I have students read the Constitution. Uh, the argument that I make is that American politics is a game, uh, and if you are going to play the game, you need to know the rules, and the rule book is especially uh, is supposed to be the Constitution, or at least it was before Donald Trump uh, became president. I'm not sure that anymore. Uh, do you think ordinary voters care uh, that Donald Trump has willfully abused and neglected the Constitution uh, during the three and a half years he's uh, become president? I mean, he has done things that, in my opinion, would make the founding fathers uh, gag. Um, and sometimes I wonder if anybody cares. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one of the things that uh, you articulated, meaning whether he has flattered the Constitution, I think the things that people really just can't articulate about the problems that they have with this president is exactly that. The fact that he flouts the Constitution, and he does it in so many ways. In the areas that I'm most concerned about, he undermines the rule of law, and he undermines the concepts of justice, and not only the concepts of justice, but things like separation of powers. Uh, he put in an attorney general who believes in a unitary executive, that the executive is paramount. And this was all flagged before Attorney General Barr got was uh, nominated and confirmed. This was things that Attorney General Barr, when he was attorney general for George H.W. Bush, espoused. And so it's concerning, to say the least, frightening, uh, probably more accurately, that Attorney General Barr is doing the bidding of the president uh, and flouting the Constitution in so many ways and undermining the just undermining not only the Justice Department, where I worked for a number of years, but also the concepts of justice overall. Yeah, it's uh, really scary sometimes. Well, uh, let's go back uh, to your comment on the rule of law. Uh, over the weekend, uh, the attorney general announced uh, that the Trump administration was going to uh, drop the prosecution uh, against Michael Flynn, uh, who was Donald Trump's uh, national security advisor, I think, for 45 days, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, probably, you know, um, and I don't know how many national security advisors have there been since then. There have at least been a few. Uh, but uh, Michael Flynn was caught up in the uh, Russia scandal. Uh, he pleaded guilty twice, I believe, uh, to uh, lying to Congress or and lying to FBI investigators. Uh, but, uh, you know, even though he's pleaded guilty twice, the uh, attorney general announced they were dropping his prosecution. What kind of implications does that have even, you know, and it seems to me the obvious one is that, you know, if you're a Trump supporter, you can lie freely to the FBI and not worry about it. So this is a really 
unprecedented. I, I don't want to say unprecedented literally, but I think it may be unprecedented literally. A move by the attorney general uh, to, dis- to dismiss the indictment or dis- dismiss the guilty plea. Now, one of the things that your listeners should know is that this is not an end-all be-all, right? It's a motion that is uh, before the court. And Judge Sullivan, who actually uh, received or was presiding over one of those guilty pleas that you mentioned, uh, needs to decide this. And the important thing here is that whenever a court takes on a, uh, or approves a guilty plea, they go through a whole litany to make sure that the prosecution, the defense, and the defendant all understand what's going on here. And they, Judge Sullivan was incredibly careful. In, in making sure that Michael Flynn knew exactly what he was pleading guilty to, to making a materially false statement to the FBI in the investigation uh, of Russian uh, coordination, collusion, whatever you want to call it, with the Trump administration. Now, when DOJ usually dismisses something like this, and it happens very rarely, it's when there's maybe some evidence that there is new uh, new exculpatory evidence that come out that came out or something that changes the whole dynamic of it. Um, And that happens very rarely because especially at the federal level, the amount of investigation that happens before something like this, especially for public integrity or, or cases this important, is very vast. What we have here is Attorney General Barr moving to dismiss a guilty plea. Again, not an indictment, but a guilty plea with no new evidence at all. And he's talking about whether or not this what happened was essentially material to the investigation. If you read the actual filing, Attorney General Barr and U.S. Attorney Tim Shea, who is a hand-picked close confidant of Attorney General Barr, is, is basically saying the underlying investigation, is, they don't believe in it. And so because they don't believe in the underlying investigation, they are now thinking that this guilty plea should be should be dismissed, and that is that part is the part that's unprecedented. DOJ never does, which is again something that will harm not only the Justice Department but again the rule of law. Okay, we're going to go to break now. When we get back, we'll speak to uh, Ed Chung, who is with the Center for American Progress. So don't go away. We still got a lot of great deadline DC with Brad Bannon in the next 15 minutes. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Ed Chung from the Center of American Progress. Uh, Ed, you worked in the uh, civil rights section of the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, So I'd like to uh, get your uh, opinions on this horrible case that happened in Georgia uh, with the killing of a young black man, uh, Ahmed Ordery, uh, who was simply jogging and he was apparently hunted down and murdered uh, by uh, a father, a white father and son pair. Uh, Now, one thing it took weeks, apparently, uh, before the uh, appropriate district attorney in Georgia filed charges. Um, And I could you tell us about the case? 
Yeah, I mean, this was an incredibly sad and tragic and devastating case where, as you said, a young black man was jogging and he was hunted down by uh, a father and son, both white. The, the jogger uh, and the victim in this case was black uh, and was doing nothing besides running. He was a black man that was jogging and he that's how he got hunted down and shot. Um, the doubly tragic thing about this case, it would be tragic enough, the fact that, of the death, but the doubly tragic thing is that the justice system failed once again and failed uh, a black victim and, and his family once again because uh, the district attorney and the police in that case declined to pursue charges. And even if after there was uh, video evidence that came out, they continued to decline charges. And it was only until the video was was publicized to the public and there was an outcry that some type of action took place. And it wasn't the action from the district attorney. The district attorney had connections to both on they had worked together in various capacities before if that were the case the district attorney should automatically recuse himself from the case and have a different agency whether it is a different district attorney's office whether it's the state attorney general a different prosecuting agency or and a different investigating agency uh, look at this case and prosecute it and at the very least if there are racial implications of this if this could potentially be a hate crime which it seems like at the very least there's predicate for it then they should go to the department of justice at the uh, the federal uh, federal department of justice us department of justice to pursue these charges but that's the tragedy of this case where you have a failure of justice as well as the racial implications of the killing itself you know it's really this case is a sad commentary it just seems to me that you know you could say on one hand it it it's like something out of a you know movie about the you know from the south in the 1950s and 60s where these two white guys hunt down this guy simply while he's jogging uh and murder him um but sadly uh this kind of violence against uh, young black men especially is, is epidemic um do you think uh the that the Trump Department of Justice, or this has to violate, I imagine, uh, federal hate crime laws. Yeah, I was a. Uh, yeah, I was somebody who prosecuted those hate crime laws, and it, there was, at the very least, there appears to be. And I, I am only being uh, careful in my language because obviously we want the justice system to run its course, even if we don't have confidence in the way that this particular district attorney uh, handled this case. But there has there is federal implications here of such uh, of for the hate crime that you're talking about. There's also should be somebody, some entity looking into what this uh, particular district attorney did as well, installing. Uh, in, meaning put, putting the brakes on particular on the actual prosecution itself. It is, again, another reason why people look at the justice system and shake their heads in disbelief that, you know, harkening back to our earlier earlier conversation regarding Michael Flynn, those who are, have power and those who have privilege get away with things. And yeah, those who don't. Very sad commentary. Ed, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, our guest in this half hour has been Ed Chung from the Center for American 
progress. And he used to work for the Justice Department where he prosecuted hate hate crimes. Uh, that's it for Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, folks. I want to thank my guest, Ed Chung, Heidi Shareholtz from the Economic Policy Institute. I'm here every Monday at 3 o'clock if the 3 p.m. Eastern time. If the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise, stay healthy, stay home, and don't drink the detergent. I don't care what the president says. <laughs>